0: You're listening to the Between You and Me podcast, brought to you by JesusWire.com, with your host, Jessica Morris.
1: Hello, welcome to the new episode of Between You and Me, the podcast where we talk about the things that hurt, heal and change us in the music industry and in the church. Today, we are on part two of our very special series with Dan Koch of Sherwood and Pacific Gold and the You Have Permission To podcast. Seriously, what hasn't this dude done? Anyway, today's episode is so exciting because we are diving into his career. He's telling us all about how Sherwood started, what it means to him and how his life changed when they broke up. I mean, people talk about success of a band, right? They're like, oh, you did this and you toured with this. I mean, these guys were with like Reliant K. They have friends with some of the biggest people in the industry. They did Vans Warped Tour. You know, you name it, Sherwood have done it. But when you break up, no one really talks about you anymore unless you do a reunion tour. Well, Sherwood definitely did a reunion tour, but it's also like what happens between then and what happens afterwards and how do you keep living your life and being a whole fully healthy human when you're not part of the band that you thought defined you and that you loved when you're a teenager. We get to talk all about that today with Dan Koch, so I'm here for it and I'm so excited that you guys are too. There is no intro today because you heard it all last week. That being said, if you missed last week's episode, go dive in. We talk end times, theology, and Dan's work as he's starting to become a psychologist. So we dive into that, and today we are looking at the other half of his life, the musical aspect. I think you guys will love it. My friends, here is more from our friend, Dan Koch. You talked a little bit about when you are growing up and how you're sort of deconstruction of faith happened when you sort of went into the punk rock area and cared about people, um, which is a great reason to start deconstructing your faith, if I can say that.
2: Well, to be clear, no, I would say my faith came alive through punk rock. And then I started deconstructing it when I applied that back to the Canaanites or something like that.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. In college. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Can you tell me how that culture took you into the music industry and actually helped you to express your faith and experience it more than just think it cerebrally?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. So here's how I would probably plot that. So in high school, I'm in punk bands and uh, because I'm learning guitar and drums and all that stuff and starting to write songs and, but then what's going on in my faith is that punk is a way into Jesus basically. And then in college, uh, my friends decided to start this band with me, Sherwood, which eventually would go on to tour. And uh, we, we did it full time for about eight years, you know, on the road or in the studio, 10 months out of the year, full time job for all that time. And I think that at that point, we were not interested. In, this was very common, by the way, in the early 2000s. We were very conscious of being a Christian band versus being a general market band. And we did not want to be a Christian band. And I think that that was part of, this is part of that story of like, I wanted to be playing Warped Tour uh, or what's the one, Soundwave? Is that the one in yeah,
1: Australia? That, that was the right. one in Australia.
2: So we never got to do Soundwave, but a bunch of friends uh, played it. And so like, I wanted to be in that world. And I think that that was related, that I was like, I don't want to be in a Christian bubble. I had spent quite a bit of my life mostly in a Christian bubble, and even in college, we had a, there was a massive um, evangelical college ministry. Our school of about 17,000 would have 1,000 people every Wednesday night, so it's pretty big. You could still stay in a Christian bubble, even at a state school um, at that time, and so I I think that was probably the first causal arrow I could draw, is like, okay, uh, this is not about preaching to the choir, but that being said, the band wasn't Super overtly Christian Some lyrics here and there People knew that we were Christians If they toured with us or got to know us a bit um, But that, that's sort of the beginning of it I don't know if that really answers your question Oh I
0: don't believe it That I could be so deceiving And bringing you down To feel this lack of loyalty You were a song in my head warm arrival never left so cold don't blink don't close your eyes and most of all don't apologize it's me who's got the demons to wrestle
1: now definitely i actually had a question about the christian secular divide in the music industry and that started to answer it. So that was terrific. Did you get feel any uh, pressure from family, friends, or even the wider evangelical church to be more uh, pronounced about your faith and saying we are a Christian band?
2: Not really. I mean, I certainly didn't get any from my parents, which I'm grateful for. Uh, and I think all of our parents were just so excited that we were doing this thing, that we were having whatever sort of limited success that we had. Um, I don't remember getting a lot of pushback about that, honestly, which now I think about it is surprising maybe, but I think it also speaks to the fact that I wasn't really raised in that fundamentalist context. So Mm -hmm. if, for instance, like a friend of my parents at a Christmas party had made a point like that, they would have been the weird one in my experience. They would have been the oddball.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I know that there's, It's probably disappeared a bit in the last few years, but probably in the late 2000s, early 2010s, Christian culture or evangelical culture, I should say, has this habit of cottoning onto a celebrity or a band and they say something about God, maybe overtly or just a little bit, and we sort of go, "They're ours." Look at them being a great witness to the faith.
2: Yeah, Tim Tebow, we, Kanye West, yeah, etc. Yep,
1: and we lobby them all the way until they say something we disagree with, or until they release an album that talks about sex. And then, unless your Kanye needs to reverse, but but then it's like then we literally will like pour gasoline on them and just just leave them like like we're just like done. And and Nothing. I've I've sort of seen so many artists or observed it even in my own life, so many musicians just be like, I'm either going to stay clearly in this Christian sphere because, you know, I can make a living out of it. It's authentic for me. Or there are people who are like, I'm just going to try and step away from that as much as I can because that's nasty. And, like, I, I think of, like, Switchfoot and Reliant K particularly as bands like that, even a little bit Need to Breathe, who would somehow straddle this secular Christian divide and I'm not sure they even want to. And I'm just like, how, how as a musician do you approach that and sort of go, how can I be authentic to my own craft, knowing that I could get all this, I don't know, this feedback, positive or negative, about my personal faith when I literally just release something?
2: Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, um, frankly, a a number of close friends of mine have had to deal with this question on a lot more personal level than I've ever had to deal with it. Um, But what I think a big part of it is that there is a massive cultural machinery around Christian media, and that includes music and includes films and includes whatever. Uh, probably podcasts, and to some extent it includes uh, head pastor jobs and stuff, teaching pastor jobs and stuff like that, um, and authors and all of that. And, and you know, on the one hand, uh, having an industry of content for a large group of people that is specifically for them is a great thing. That's one of the good things about capitalism and uh, technology and a free market and all that is that people can have their problems addressed directly without having to just look for their own meaning in some state approved book release or something, you know, Uh, so that's great. But then there are market pressures that accompany that. So once you have that, then you have a consumer base that has certain expectations and uh, they might, they might have good, uh, I don't know, motivations. For those expectations, like for instance, uh, a soccer mom saying, I would like music that is safe for my teenager to listen to, that I don't have to like pour through every lyric to figure it out. I think that's a perfectly fine motivation. A darker motivation would be something like, I like rap and I'm a Christian, but I don't want anything that challenges my notions of race. Well, that's a bad motivation. Mm-hmm. And yet, Uh, there are stories of a lot of these African-American Christian rappers basically being told to stop talking about racial issues in their own art because the market will not support it, essentially. That's my translation of what is going on. Uh, The festivals will not book you anymore. You won't sell these records. These stores will not carry you because you will be perceived as part of the liberal political agenda. But like, these are people writing about... (laughs) They're writing about an organic style of music that developed in their racial communities, Mm -hmm. right? And so I don't know if that is a start to answering your question or not.
1: That was a terrific answer. And that started to like uncover so many, so many conversations that have happened. I think that's just starting to rise to the surface of Christian media. So when we had the whole relevant thing come out, which had been, in talks quietly for years we had like stuff with kirk Kirk franklin and alex medina and but like that's reflective of the fact that a couple of years before lecrae was essentially like he lost a whole ton of fans because he talked about race and so it's it's like it's starting to rise to the surface and for a lot of people in the industry we're going oh finally someone's talking about it but for a lot of other people who had no idea they're like wait what racism exists in the christian music industry and like and and you mean there's unethical things that go on it's like yeah because there's people and because it's a business um so while you're like really dot pointing those things i i'm hearing them and going that's exactly why i started this podcast because i was like how do i reconcile this with my faith i moved to nashville and was like all these christian musicians are here or quote unquote christian and and what does that even mean? And they're unhappy and some have left the church and there are some who like, don't even like what they're writing and what does this all mean? And so I completely understand that because it's so complicated and convoluted, but it's such an issue that a lot of people just don't even see or hear.
2: I think that's awesome. I think that's a fantastic reason to start a podcast. And I, (laughs) I guess I wonder, like, do you feel like you can even like how honest do you even feel like people feel they can be on your show if oh. their if their bread and butter is writing Hillsong songs or something? Oh my
1: like gosh! That. Yes, um, it's so true, and I'm so aware of that because so I my press release that I put out to send to artists and, ma- and managers and stuff essentially says, "Look, I want to have conversations that will normally never make it to press. I want to have conversations like what you'd have over a drink with friends." But I also know realistically that lots of artists don't have the luxury of that because they will lose their entire career if they say one thing wrong. Um, so when I talk to independent artists or artists who have been, who have been signed and left, they will be unfiltered. They will yeah. say nearly anything okay. they want. Um, but then I have artists who are signed on who are signed and, like, I have had heels on and stuff and I have great respect for them, but I also know that they're not just talking for themselves. They're carrying the entire vision of a of a church and a brand. So I actually can't expect them to tell me their complete personal opinion about something short of what stays on brand and message. And so it's this really awkward nuance of going, how can I find the authentic part of that person's story in a way that respects them without actually exploiting them? because I want them to share their story but I don't want them to lose their career and I don't want them to feel pressure to do that either. And so it's this really awkward balance of actually going, what does this person need in this moment and how can I facilitate that conversation?
0: Two hands hold my father's cup. One says drink, the other stuck on everything. I've tried to push away, push away. When the devil whispered in my ear that I could live a thousand years if I stay on the straight and narrow way It's in these bones But some people never see They won't wake up from the dream and go it alone Unless we grow Transforming others' eyes, cascading butterflies into the unknown, into the eye, no.
3: Hey everybody, it's Chrissy Nordoff here. I wanted to share a little bit with you about my book coming out March 1st. It's available for pre-order now with some freebies. It's called Writing Worship, How to Craft Heartfelt Songs for the Church. You may have noticed lots of churches are beginning to sing their own songs. And while this seems like a new thing, it's actually a very old thing. And I believe it's beautiful because the church is getting her voice back. So if you've ever been interested in songwriting or you'd like to write for your church, check it out. We talk a lot about the heart behind a songwriter writing for worship. We talk about the skills it takes to get it done. We talk about the community that you need to have around you and the importance of co-writing and then we also talk a lot about the purpose behind why we do what we do so go check it out writing worship
1: do you create wedding videos podcasts, ads content maybe even one of those slideshows while you're trying to move your church into the 21st century well soundstripe is the answer to all your problems the ultimate music stock site made for video producers they offer a great variety of high quality royalty free songs and have an unlimited licensing model this is literally one of a kind in the industry And that is because it was created by musicians. With a monthly or yearly fee, you have unlimited access to world-class music. We are talking composers like Aaron Sprinkle and Matt Winton. Every time you license a song through Soundstripe, the royalty goes straight back to the musician. With curator playlists, new music every week, and more than 30,000 special effects, This is the ultimate source of music for creatives. Trust me, I've been using this since day one with Between You and Me, and I can tell you that any background music you are hearing comes directly from Soundstripe. They are absolutely incredible. When you sign up for Soundstripe today, you can get 10% off using the code UMEPOD. That is soundstripe.com with the code UMEPOD. And now, back to the show. I
2: think you have the right uh, modality there. I'm, I'm very impressed by the way you've thought through that, actually. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of like a journalistic thing, right? Like,
1: I am a journalist. Sorry, yeah. that helps. Yeah.
2: Well, there you go. And I'm not really. So, I mean, a little bit maybe with the, these newer episodes, like, oh, I'm trying to figure out why this was real and stuff, but or real for people or why they thought it was plausible. You know, that's kind of journalistic, but that's not generally what I'm doing. I'm just like, I'm kicking the can around with people on stuff that they have already pretty much made public. So. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I love that because, and when I saw that you were actually researching this, I was like, there is such a need for that because there's so much, there are so many podcasts now, like we're part of it and, and there is so much content and anyone can talk about anything. So to have like that point of difference of going, well, this is my background and I can give that and your background is your music career and your studies and psychology. And so the fact that you can give that perspective makes what you give unique, which I love because there are 10 other podcasts that will talk about similar things, but not the same way you do. Um, which is, I guess the aim of creating content.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you have to figure out something that you're doing. That's a little bit different. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes I'm less clear on what it is that I'm doing that's different. And sometimes I feel more clear about it.
1: Yeah. That's comforting. I appreciate that, (laughs) definitely. Um, Can I ask you a little bit about uh, the more specifics of your music career? Normally when I have an artist on, I will be like, so tell me how you got started and how you got signed, and they take me through the whole narrative. Um, But I would love to know for you, like, when you, how you were signed for starters with Sherwood and how that took you around the world. Can I start with that? (laughs) That sounds good
2: It's interesting because some people will occasionally ask us today, like, how we did it. And it's just totally different. I mean, it's just different rules altogether. So this is pre-Spotify. What we're doing is, at that point, we got in a van. 2004, we recorded an EP. We self-financed it, a seven-track EP. We pressed our first thousand copies. We got in a van. We played awful shows to <laughs> 20 people a night, and then we would go to malls. We would go outside of Hot Topic with our, uh, our like CD players, our disc men, and, and play the CDs for people and try and sell CDs for five bucks. It's
1: amazing. And that's how
2: we made it to the next town. And then we, we wormed our way onto the Warp Tour that summer, that first summer of 2004. And that's how we got our first deal is that it, someone caught wind of our work ethic essentially, and that that we were pretty good. We had a pretty good EP, a couple good songs, uh, obviously a little rough and you know self-funded, but we worked really hard. and that's why we found out later. That's why we got signed. And then we got our next deal uh, because the owner of that label really liked the record that we made with the first label. Uh, and that's the company that was, so it was MySpace Records. If you remember Nice. MySpace.
1: Yes. Yeah.
2: So our MySpace debut came out in 2007, which was the height of MySpace. And, you know, back then we were, uh, we had, we had sold um, at that point, like 12 or 13,000 records, which is not a lot. I mean, it's a lot, but it's not, we were no household name. And then in one night we got 750,000 plays of our first single because Tom, the founder of Myspace, or the president, put it on his profile page.
1: Thank you, Tom, yes.
2: And we would get dinner with Tom when we were in LA and stuff, and uh, so that was that. And and they spent the money to send us to Japan and put out our record in Japan with a, a Japanese label partnership there. And then they spent a bunch of money to send us to Europe three times, which did not work. We never really caught on there. We did have some fans in like Germany um, and a few fans in the UK, which was fun, but it didn't really stick. And even though they sent us three times to the UK and and once over to mainland Europe, and uh, yeah, so that's kind of the basic nuts and bolts. There's more. We we were, frankly, we were hardworking. We actually, this is kind of a funny story. So we figured out ways to like kind of game the system. So when we were in college in 2004, and we put our EP up, there was a site called Pure Volume. This is like I remember pre- that yeah pre-Spotify, and they that was where you would go to find, like, indie rock bands. So we would, at 9 p.m. Pacific time, it was midnight Eastern time, which is when the ratings would reset for the bands that were at the top of the charts. We noticed this. So we would go to the library at our college, which had, like, 100 computers, and we would go around and we would stream all seven tracks on each computer – so we'd have 700 plays or, I don't know, 1,000 plays or something at 1201 Eastern Time. so good. So we would jump to number one. And then throughout the day, we would slowly go down because other bands were actually bringing people to the site because of their music. But, like, that's how we got uh, some of our first shows and a, a few fans online. And that was, like, kind of kick-started the whole thing.
1: That's phenomenal <laughs> so so we good. just
2: hustled like hell man. Yes. that's what we did it was yes. crazy I think you better turn that car
0: around judging by the tears
1: guys come to a point where you decided it was time to part ways or split up because I know that you reunited in the last few years according to Spotify
2: but in 2016 yeah we did
1: a record yeah so so how did you guys come to a point where you'd been I mean you'd been moderately successful you were toured the world so you had something like something really good going that lots of musicians just dream of what why did you come to the conclusion that it was time to sort of step back and do something else individually
2: yeah. So it was a lot of things. Um, we, we started getting married and then a bit, I mean, a big part was the 2008 financial crash. So that for mid-level bands, that kind of took the rug out of, out from under a lot of us. So we were surviving on people's merch money that they brought to the show to buy a shirt. And the parents are given the teenagers less merch money or the 20 year old, you know, is uh, mostly it's, the 20 year old probably still has the same job at the video store or whatever, but the, the high schoolers, right? So they get their money from their parents and they can buy shirts and CDs because these bands are safe and, or just maybe it's their allowance or something. And then a lot of that extra money dries up um, with the financial crash and the recession. And so that was a big part of it. Uh, MySpace went down. So our third record, which was also on MySpace didn't do as well as the second one and we weren't able to keep in touch with our fans as well because we were keeping in touch through myspace messages with them and instead of emails and uh we weren't on facebook and twitter because they were competitors of myspace Mm -hmm. and uh you know so all this kind of stuff we were kind of caught up in the machinery of that of the tech social media wars between the companies and uh yeah we just it became kind of unsustainable financially and we moved to different States and it just kind of fell apart uh, at that point. And that was really 2011. We officially announced it in
1: 2012. Yeah. So how did you redefine your identity when you were no longer like the guy in Sherwood, you were the guy who was in Sherwood and now you were married and you sort of like had this somewhat new life. Like how did you redefine yourself?
2: That is an incredible question. Nobody asks stuff like that. That's great. This is a real problem for people who have been creatively engaged for their adulthood. Um, uh, So at first I was just the newly married guy piecing together a living, but very quickly I was like, oh, I'm going to start another project. So I started a band called Pacific Gold. It was initially called Wayfarer, but there were a bunch of Wayfarers. We changed our name. And that was my identity for a while, even though we were a lot less popular, uh, but I would put my extra time into it. And I would think of myself as Dan from Pacific Gold. I remember thinking one time that if I got, if I had a cancer diagnosis and I had two years to live or a year to live, what would I do? I would write as many Pacific Gold songs as I could. That was how I saw myself. And now it's kind of incredible to me how quickly I transitioned I think that I needed something like that to define myself. And so that's what I that's what I chose almost by default. But then um, around 2016, I don't remember if it was before or after we did the Sherwood record uh, at a at a all church retreat at the church my wife and I were attending, I, I we did this exercise and I realized that I didn't need my identity to be that I was a musician. That I was always, like, Dan was always working on a record, was one thing I believed about myself that had to be true. And I recognized I didn't need to be that way. And so I stopped. I stopped working on records, and I, it must have been right after the Sherwood record. And uh, I have not really written songs for myself since then. And that freed up space to do the podcasts, uh, as well as grad school, which now I probably think of myself as Dan, the guy from You Have Permission, instead of Dan, the guy from Sherwood. And it's all the same thing uh, that I need to yep. <laughs> work through, you know, that I'm not defined by my work. I'm defined by, you know, who I am and that God loves me and accepts me and my, you know, my family and friend relationships and all of that would be a better way to think of myself than the public work that I do. Although I don't know that I'll ever really get past that, just given my personality type.
1: I, I get that too. It's a I could, because I put so much of myself into my work, which I, imagine you do as well. It's, it nearly becomes like entangled with who you are. And so when it doesn't work out, you're sort of left with, Oh, what? But you, of course you naturally put yourself into something else because, because you're passionate and that becomes your next identity. So I get it. It's really complicated.
2: Yeah. And then, and then the more successful that that thing gets the easier it is to feel Mm -hmm. that way. So as I'm sure you do, you watch your download numbers and if they go up, you feel, good about yourself and if they go down you wonder if you're doing something wrong and are people not accepting me or they just don't like this you know
1: yep and that's the things that everyone thinks but no one talks about so everyone else thinks that everyone else is just like really happy and successful all the time because instagram
2: yep exactly
1: yeah um you talked a little bit about uh your work with pacific gold and i know that you don't um write for pacific gold anymore but i was looking that your take on hymns?
2: Yeah, they're basically all rewritten hymns,
1: yeah. That's awesome. Why did you choose to do that with hymns? Essentially, you came from a band where you wrote original content.
2: Uh, We were attending a church then that basically followed that model. So all the music, and actually they changed over music directors and still kept that, which is interesting. Uh, But it was all either hymns or rewritten sort of more contemporary rewrites And I remember thinking, like, if I was ever going to do, like, a faith music project, I would do this. I would do something like this, but it would be more like the Beach Boys or whatever I was thinking at the time. And uh, so then that was kind of, like, the next project idea on my list. And it was partly something I was passionate about, but it was also partly, like, an art experiment. You know, like, could this work? And what I think I found through doing uh, you know, basically two EPs and a full length of that is that it works, but it works better the more you rewrite it. Like So towards the end, I was writing quite a bit of my own lyrics and using the original hymn as like a starter. I think it flowed better that way. So I think of it as like a partially successful experiment. And there's some songs that I'm still very proud of, um, but I don't know that it totally, you know, People have different mileage on that. I I know people who, I can't believe this, but a friend of mine who has worked in the music industry, like in music tech for his whole life, told me in all sincerity, it is his number one desert island album. And I can't believe that that's true, but I don't think he's lying to me. Uh, And and we're not close enough friends that he would be buttering me up with it. So um, I don't know. So I I guess it, it obviously works for some people more than it works for me, but... Um, you know, someday maybe we'll try that again. I, I the, the hymns thing is a little bit harder. The more your faith changes, the fewer hymns you feel like you can kind of co-sign on. Yeah. And there's definitely some of those early Wayfarer songs, you know, now Pacific Gold, that I'm like, I would not have chosen to do that hymn if I was doing this today.
1: of every podcast is just ask my guest a few random questions. Um, sure. Obviously slightly more random what I've already been asking you, just more like if a fan came up to you that remembered you from Sherwood days, maybe they would yeah. ask this. Um, so number one, what was your most pinch me moment as a musician?
2: It's uh, oh, a great one. The one I often tell is um, we played our, our one time we went to Japan we i missed my connecting flight oh so i was visiting my girlfriend who's now my wife up in seattle and i my flight was delayed down to san francisco where we were flying to tokyo so i got there the next day and we were supposed to be there there's only one flight on this particular airline to tokyo once a day so i get there um and i am picked up by a minivan at the airport. Taken straight to the stage for sound check before our set at this festival with 25,000 Japanese young people in a converted airplane hangar. And I, so we do our set, it goes pretty well. I'm backstage, uh, our friends are there playing white tees, no effects. Front man is playing because me first and the gimme gimmies are playing, angels and airwaves are playing. And then I am side stage. So three hours later after our set, I'm side stage with the Plain White Tees guys. Tom DeLong from Blink-182 is standing next to me because of Angels and Airwaves. And Fat Mike is there who was had become a friend of mine from Warp Tour. And then we're watching Rancid play to 25,000 Japanese kids. Wow. And then they cover a song by Operation Ivy which is like the band that got me into ska punk when I was like 14 and it's in Japan and I'm jet lagged as all get out. <laughs> and I'm just like, is this real? This is the craziest moment I've ever, exp- up till that point it was like the craziest moment of my life.
1: That is so, so good. I'm s- Having all those factors collide is just ridiculous and amazing. I love that. It was
2: crazy. It was, yeah, it was crazy. And I didn't, you know, I didn't, uh, we weren't, we never became big in Japan. You know, we had, there were a few people who liked our band there, but it was more just kind of brushing up against all this other stuff from my youth.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, what was the weirdest evangelical thing you did as a child that you thought was normal?
2: The weirdest evangelical, um, oh gosh.
1: I can give you an example from my life. (laughs) Uh, well, I, I was bored one when I was like seven in the schoolyard and I've got a twin sister. So we decided to commandeer all the school kids and line them up and pretend that the door was Satan. And we started kicking the door and just getting all these random seven-year-olds to do it.
2: Wow. That's, yeah, that's, that's, that's that's pretty funny.
1: You can understand why I went to therapy, but
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah, yeah, I have been in for about five years myself. Um, one of the best things I ever did. Uh, okay. (laughs) weird thing. A weird thing I did as an evangelical, well, I've told this story before, but not on this show. Uh, when I was in the midst of all of my terror about Jesus coming back, I remember being in sixth grade before puberty and praying to God, please let me be naked with a woman before you come back. I won't, I don't yes. even need to have sex. I don't know why people even want to have sex. I know that's <laughs> sinful. I just want to be naked with a naked girl. And I don't want to come back
1: best. before that. Oh, my gosh. That is amazing.
2: <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that's a real story. No, it's
1: that's not. excellent. That is excellent. Um, my last question for you, if you could go back to uh, the morning before you played on Warp Tour for the first time, what would you say to yourself, knowing what you know now?
2: <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. What would I do? Yeah. What would I tell myself about that whole time? Um, I'm gonna think about that for a second. That's a really good. Please, question. please do. Be wise about the business, but worry less about how well your band is going to do, because fifteen years from now, the difference between making a year and $20,000 a year is not going to seem very important to you.
1: Love that series. I love talking about hard things and weird things and finding kindred spirits on the other side of the world because we all somehow survived weird evangelical culture together and found music through it. So grateful I have you guys. <laughs> if you loved Dan and would love to chat with him and say congratulations on your new baby, Definitely go and do that. You can find him online at Dan Coke. That is D-A-N-C-O-K-E. All the details are in our show notes below, as well as links to the music that we played today so you can pick up some of his old tunes and really enjoy and appreciate that. You'll also find a link to his podcast if you'd like to hear more. Thank you guys for joining me for this extra special series with Dan. I'm so excited. I just love this stuff. Thank you. Thank you for diving into the hard things with me. It just gets me so excited because i feel like that's where we really start to pull off the things that hold us back and hinder us and cause us pain and we can actually start to heal and grow and breathe and dan does that through his podcast and he's done that through his music and i love that we got to chat about that today so thank you dan that was the end of our series with dan coke but Good news, we are back next week, so we're keeping our regular schedule and we'll have a wonderful new episode for you. So guys, make sure that you hit subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you can get that as soon as it hits your inbox. And if you love what you hear, would you please go and give us a review? I know that I seriously ask it every week and every podcaster does. It's like a broken record. But the thing about reviews and star ratings is that it just helps people to actually hear and find and see the podcast, which is crucial. For independent podcasters, so I would love it if you would go and do that. If you would like to support the podcast but don't really know how to, we also have another excellent option. We have merch. if Follow the link in our show notes or visit betweenyouandmepod.com. You'll find a link to some sweet logo merch. Uh, some tributes to some old CCM icons. You can get mugs and diaries and t-shirts and hoodies and you name it. Apparently we even have baby onesies. That's a thing. So go and check that out as well guys. We would love you to support us in that way and to look really cool doing it. That's all for this episode but I will see you guys next week. My name is Jessica Morris and I will see you then.
0: The devil thought he had a to me he told so many lies that i believed got too weak to carry on i thought that i was too far gone but then i heard a voice from calvary and now i'm singing no more shackles on my feet For listening to the Between You and Me podcast, stay connected by visiting www.betweenyouandmepod.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. For more Christian news, reviews, and interviews, get plugged in to JesusWire.com.